Amen. Uh, well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and it's uh, a delight to get to open up God's Word and to teach to you from it this morning. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing on in our study of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. So if you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And, and what you need to know here at the start in our passage today Paul, uh, who writes 2 Corinthians, is sort of on the the tail end of a a pastoral appeal where he is trying to reconcile his relationship with the Corinthian church. And and just as a refresher, we don't have all the details, but something happened the last time that Paul visited Corinth. He was returning to the city to check on how things were going in the church. Remember, Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and he had lived there for almost two years. And during this visit, when he goes to check things out, uh, he refers to it, by the way, as a painful visit in chapter 2. Paul has, uh, I guess, what can be described as a fairly public confrontation with someone in the church. And either in passivity or hostility, either way, the Corinthians, the rest of the church, they don't stick up for Paul. And even some of them joined in. And so Paul left the city. And as we've seen since February, looking at this letter, Paul sees this apparent lack of loyalty on behalf of the Corinthians. He sees it not just as a personal affront to him. It certainly was that, very painful, But also, more seriously, he saw it as a spiritual threat to the church. In the end, the Corinthian opposition to Paul, it represented opposition to God. And it left the church there vulnerable. Because Paul's opponents, these false teachers, they now had influence in Paul's absence. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been writing about his ministry. Really, he's been asserting his authority as an apostle, but also he's been extending a pastoral, even a parental hand out to the Corinthians. He's begged them. In chapter 6, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, he said, widen your hearts, open yourselves to me. And he continues that in our passage today, starting in verses 2 through 4. Look with me again, if you will, at at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Paul's making an appeal to the Corinthians. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Okay, we we get more of the same here, right? Paul Paul says here, you guys may have rejected me. You you might have hurt me, but you've done that for, for no reason. I've done nothing wrong by you. And then he reassures them. He says, regardless of how you've treated me, my heart is tied to you in every way. And then in verse 4, he goes further. He says, I have pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy. Now why? 
What was it about the Corinthians that enabled Paul to write that, that he has pride, comfort, and joy? Given the context I just went over, given what we know about their relationship, we, we know that the, ch- the church in Corinth is, is not perfect. And we know that they're, they're not a great church. We basically have the whole letter of 1 Corinthians that points out all the different problems they had as a church. So, so what makes Paul say this to them? His comfort, pride, joy. Look at verses 5 through 9. Paul's going to tell us why. Verse 5, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Did I understand these verses? I I need to make sure you're straight on uh, the rest of the story from earlier. Okay, after the painful visit... Remember, Paul leaves Corinth, and and sometime after, he writes a a letter. This is not 2 Corinthians. This is a letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians. He writes this letter. This was referenced in verse 8. He also mentioned it in chapter 2. He said it was written with many tears, and apparently, this letter was severe. It it was a, a, a firm, a stern call to the Corinthians to repent, and Paul sent Titus, his disciple, to Corinth to deliver this letter. Okay, now, to put this in terms at least that I understand, this is like a a more significant and serious version of a a middle school romance. Okay, right? Like, kids probably don't do this anymore, but I can remember, like, writing a note to a girl that I liked, asking her out, you know, getting my best friend to slip it in her locker, and waiting for her to send her best friend to my locker with a response. And if you remember those days, the wait to get the note back, like between second and fifth period, you know, right before lunch, it was agonizing, right? It was horrible. Was she right back? What's she going to say? Obviously, she was into me. Shocker, I know. (laughs) But that didn't make the wait any less stressful, right? And that's basically what Paul is doing here. Okay, he, he sends Titus with this severe letter, scolding the Corinthians, begging them to repent. And he said, this is in verse 5, he says, my body had no rest. What he means there is he's worried. He's preoccupied, tossing and turning every night. He's thinking, how will they respond? Did I say the right thing? Did I say it the right way? What will they do with my letter?" And he goes months and months without hearing a a word. We we take sort of instantaneous communication today for granted, but Paul would have been waiting and waiting and waiting. But then, in verse 6, Paul begins to explain why he was filled with comfort, overflowing with joy. 
He says, God, who comforts the downcast, God comforted me, how? By sending Titus. Now, I want to point out, Paul has this little aside here, a little almost stray remark, but I think it's significant. He ascribes the ministry of comfort to God. And remember, Paul has just said, I'm facing affliction on every side. He says, we're facing enemies without. He was in this this region, Macedonia, where he'd already been thrown in jail earlier. And he also said, we have fear within. He's troubled in his soul. He's waiting for news from Titus. And in that spot, Paul says, God is a God of comfort. He comforts the downcast. And just real quick, Some of you are here this morning. Some of you came today downcast, meaning you're you're discouraged, you're sorrowful, you're upset. You might be facing external pressure or hardship. Maybe it's sickness, hostility, temptation. More likely, you might be facing what Paul here calls fears within, worry, anxiety, grief. There's so many different ways you and I might be downcast today. If you are, if that's you, Paul reminds you here, he says, God is a God of comfort. God comforts the downcast. And the entire Bible affirms this truth from cover to cover. We see that one of God's deepest impulses, one of his most natural instincts, is to to move towards sin and suffering. It's to draw near to the downcast. Time and again, God is moved with compassion for those who cry out to him. And if you're there, if you're downcast, he will do the same for you. He'll offer you this same comfort. You see, here, Paul's at his lowest point, and God does what? He he sends Titus. And on its own, that was very important. Titus was was Paul's partner in ministry, but that wasn't it, right? Because if that's all that there is, well, then I guess Paul would have like a, a shoulder to cry on, someone to empathize with him. But Paul says, and this was verse seven, he says, not only by Titus's coming, but also even more importantly with the news that Titus brings. Paul says, Titus told me of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, for me. So yes, Paul was comforted and overjoyed to see Titus. But but the end of verse 7 says, he rejoiced still more. Because the Corinthians, these these people that he loved, these people who had previously rejected him, he was filled with comfort and joy, pride even. Not only because they responded with affection for him, but also in verse 9 Paul says that the Corinthians responded to Titus by repenting, by repenting. Now, that sets up an important discussion on godly grief and repentance, but before we're able to do that, to look at that, I want to look at what Paul has to say here in verses 8 and 9, because ultimately, these verses explain the source of the Corinthians' godly grief, the the source of their Repentance. Look back with me. I want to read it again. This is verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 starts, 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Okay, so Paul knew the letter that he sent was harsh. He knew it was confrontational, that he was addressing sin in a way that would produce sorrow, that would produce grief. And he says, I don't regret it. I don't regret it. And the reason why is because, yes, it did bring about grief. It did make the Corinthians sad. But ultimately, the letter, Paul's words, were instruments that God used to bring about repentance. And the thing for us to take away from this is that ministry, discipleship, at times it will demand strong, confrontive words. Meaning, there are times as you walk alongside someone where you will have to confront sin in their life. It's just an absolute must. And that's not just me or, or West or any of our other pastors. That's for you and, and for me. That's, that's for each and every one of us. And I get it. <laughs> that scares a lot of people. Because the reality is, and, and Paul acknowledges it, doing this, calling someone on their sin, it, it does bring grief. It, it does bring sadness. And also, it, it might lead someone to reject you. It might end up costing your relationship with someone. That's the exact prospect that had Paul so downcast. And for a lot of us, myself included, those stakes seem really high. For, for a lot of us, we're not willing to, to risk being perceived as, as judgmental or, or unloving. We're not willing to, to put our relationship with someone on the line. And so most of us, we'd never dare utter a word of correction, even if we know we should. But look, you need to understand, the church, this church, is not just a, a, a charitable organization like the Red Cross. It's not just a social club. No, by its very nature, the church has been designed by God to be something very different. You see, you and me, we're brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. We're knit together by the Holy Spirit. We're not independent, we're interdependent. And because of that, we're called throughout the Bible to seek the spiritual welfare of one another. And if we remain silent, if we allow insecurity, the desire for approval to hold us back, if we ignore this responsibility, think it's for someone else to do down the line, we'll miss out on one of the most important, one of the most rewarding aspects of ministry, of discipleship. And you might think, okay, I get it. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to do this, but, but how? How should I do it? The start of an answer comes from this text. 
You see, Paul says, I didn't regret causing you grief, but then he goes on to say, though I did regret it a little while, and that might seem confusing, a little contradictory even, but I totally get what Paul's saying here. And that's because Paul is quoting my dad. Okay, you see, growing up, when I would act out, of course, these opportunities were exceedingly rare, but when I got in trouble, I would get spankings. Okay, my parents were old-fashioned like that, and I can still remember, uh, my mom would just keep like a running daily count. She wouldn't even say the words, she would just, one, two, three, four, and I'd have to wait until dad got home, and when he did, he would give me the same speech, and right before I got popped, you're probably familiar with this, he'd say, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. (laughs) And like, I didn't understand it then. Like, I didn't believe it. You're like, yeah, right, let's switch spots then, okay? (laughs) Which would earn me another pop. Uh, But as a dad now, I, I know that it's true. I totally get it. I don't like disciplining my kids, but I do know it's what's best for them. To to, to learn the difference between right and wrong, to learn how to submit to loving authority. And so I do it, even though I don't like it. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I hate to cause you grief. I take no pleasure in bringing you pain. But But he quickly circles back and he says, it's worth it. He says, I have no regrets. It's for your good. It led you to godly grief. It led you to repentance. It led you ultimately back to God. And so he says, it's worth it. I have no regrets. And that should be our heart when we are confronting someone, when we seek to correct an error. The goal is not condemnation. The goal is restoration. And there's a big difference there, right? Right? One seeks to to put the other person down. The other's looking to to lift them up. One is is critical in spirit and disposition. The other is compassionate. It's done out of care, concern. And so, as we look to confront the sin of others, the goal should always be restoration. to, to, To restore that person's relationship with God through repentance. That leads to what I was talking about earlier. It's a different question. How do we know if someone's repentance is real? How do we know if our own repentance is real? Here, how does Paul know that he can trust the Corinthians? He's about to tell us in verses 10 through 13. Repentance, he'll say, it starts with grief, but there's really two different types of grief. And discerning the difference is key. I want you to look with me for these two types of grief in verses 10 through 13. Starting with verse 10. Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. 
Therefore, we are comforted. Okay, did you, did you see them? The, the two types of grief in response to sin, they came in verse 10. Okay, there's godly grief, and then there's worldly grief. Now, even though these two griefs, these, these two sorrows, to use maybe a, a different word, even though they're really expressed outwardly in the same way, with sadness, regret, remorse, tears even, they come from completely different places, right? And more importantly, they produce completely opposite results. Now, on one hand, when someone is confronted with their sin and expresses worldly grief, again, there's actual sadness, actual regret, but the problem is what that regret, what that sadness is about. And with worldly grief, Someone is concerned with, wait for it, the world. Really, worldly grief is concerned with the self, with myself. And the result, the result is shame, despair, depression, self-pity, resentment, hostility. The result, as Paul says in verse 10, of worldly grief is death. But on the other hand, godly grief Again, outwardly, it's going to look real similar, but the focus of godly grief is God. Godly grief is concerned with the fact that God has been offended. That relationship with God has been broken because of sin. And in godly sorrow, it certainly produces an awareness of guilt, but that drives us outward, not inward. It drives us to repentance, not towards ourselves. And ultimately, as Paul says again in verse 10, godly grief leads to salvation. To salvation. So, two different types of grief. How can you know which one you have? Godly grief or, or worldly grief? Paul goes on to describe how to tell the difference. He gives us several key markers in verse 11. Look at it. First, he says, there's an earnestness to godly grief. He says there's an eagerness to clear yourself. Okay, this is the, the opposite of worldly grief's indifference or complacency. It's aggressively removing sin from your life. Practically, this means that you'd be willing to seek out accountability, bring other people into your sin. It also might mean that you're willing to take drastic measures, meaning you'd get rid of your phone if it's causing you to sin. You, you delete an app. You stop going to happy hour or talking to that coworker. You, you cut sin off from every angle. There's an eagerness, an earnestness to do this. Next, he says, godly grief is marked by indignation, a hatred for your sin. To be clear, this is not an indignation over the consequence of sin. Remember, that's worldly grief. But instead, it's indignation over the sin itself of the fact that all sin is an affront to a holy God. And this leads to the next thing, which is fear. Again, not fear of being exposed or called out or known by somebody, but a reverent fear of God. An acknowledgement of God's intolerance for sin mixed with, though, an awareness of his mercy for you. And also, Paul says there's a yearning, a longing, a zeal 
With these words, I think back to verse 7, where Titus told Paul that the Corinthians wanted to be reconciled. What this means for us is that godly sorrow is demonstrated in seeking reconciliation and looking to restore relationships broken by sin. It doesn't hide. It doesn't shun. It doesn't isolate. That's worldly grief. Godly grief is humbling yourself by going to the person that you've offended or harmed and seeking repair of what's been broken. And lastly, Paul says, what punishment? Sort of an awkward translation, but it means ultimately that justice is sought. In other words, godly sorrow doesn't avoid or ignore consequence. It's not self-protective. That's worldly grief. Instead, Godly grief, godly sorrow, readily accepts the consequences of sin. This is taking responsibility for your action regardless of what comes. So, when you think about your sin, either because someone makes you or because you feel personal conviction, do you feel this type of godly grief? One that Paul says in verses 11 and 12 enables you to prove or demonstrate your innocence to yourself and others, to to show that your repentance before God is real. Man, I'll admit, it's a high bar. It's a high bar. But it's so important. It's so important to, to evaluate, to consider. It's the difference, Paul says, between life and death, salvation and condemnation. And the motivation here is that as we experience godly grief, this this repentance of sin, we can be assured of our pardon. Why? Because Jesus mounted a cross to take the punishment for our sins. We can go to God in confession, in repentance, knowing that he's already forgiven us, knowing that he accepts us because of the blood of his son. So it's a high bar. But it's one that we can clear with confidence, knowing that we are accepted as sons and daughters of God. And the result, the result of this godly sorrow, it's not just for us, for for the one doing the repenting. It's also for others. That's what Paul has been saying here from the very beginning. It produces, Paul says, a shared joy, a collective joy. And he reiterates that in the last verses here. Look at verses 13 through 16. Starting at the back half of verse 13, Paul says, And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, do you you see the the ripple effect of joy that comes with repentance? Okay, first, the Corinthians replaced their their grief in sin with joy in obedience. That's what this whole thing has been about. But second, there's joy in Titus, that he was received well. This could have gone really badly for him, right? But it didn't. And now he's has multiplied affection for the Corinthians, a a joy by being refreshed by them. And of course, there's joy for Paul, 
both in his observing the joy of the others, but also joy in the return of confidence he has in the Corinthians. Okay, where there was insecurity before, now there's trust, there's hope. He knows that the ministry he has with the Corinthians isn't over, that God isn't done using him in their lives. Really, if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks, he knows now that they truly believe in the gospel, that his ministry to them has not been in vain. And that brings overflowing joy. Brings overflowing joy. Look, I want to conclude here. I want you to think. What are the most important aspects of cultivating or developing biblical community? What are the most important aspects of, of cultivating or developing faithful discipleship? I want you to think about that. Start to list things off in your head as you listen to me. If I ask you to, to list those things off or to, to say them, what enables or empowers those things to happen, what are the things that are coming to your mind right now? What are the first things that, that pop in your head? I'd argue, based on what we've just studied in 2 Corinthians, especially the passage today, what we see is that repentance, repentance is one component that we cannot do without. That faithful discipleship, that biblical community cannot thrive, cannot survive without repentance. Now, was that one of the things that you thought of? One of the things that you would have come up with? I'll be honest, it wouldn't have been on my list, like not even in the top ten. Not before preaching the sermon, at least. But based on the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, it's clear. We should value repentance. Repentance should be highly valued in Christian community, in discipleship. You and me, we should pursue relationships with people who help us repent, who call us to repent, like the Corinthians did with Paul. And we should also try to help others repent. We should do what it takes to come alongside people in their sin, even if it causes them grief, like Paul did with the Corinthians. Okay, so, so the final charge here is twofold. One, if, if you don't have those people, if you don't have those relationships, find them. That, that's why this church exists. We, we want you to have accountable relationships, relationships focused on growing in your faith, growing in maturity. Sure, you, you might have to put yourself out there. You might have to push conversation past the surface, but I promise it's worth it. It might be the difference, Paul says, between life and death, salvation and condemnation. And two, if you have those people, if you've developed those relationships, if you're married to a godly person, you've got godly parents, godly friends, godly pastors, and godly mentors, people who help you in this regard, stay as close to them as possible. Don't push them away when they challenge you, when they confront you. Don't question their motives. Fight for those relationships. Prioritize them. Because God works through them to your benefit. And if you do this, as a church, if we do this well, if we express godly grief in response to sin individually and collectively, we'll look a lot more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today. 
And also, as we pursue uh, accountable, meaningful relationships like Paul and Titus and the Corinthians, we'll also have joy, overflowing, contagious, ripple effect joy. And in a world filled with worldly grief, in a world filled with shame and depression and resentment and hostility, overflowing joy sure does stick out, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word. Lord, I'm thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in it, that we can know who you are, Lord, know what your priorities are in our life by studying it. And I pray for myself and my friends here, Lord, that we would be able to uh, grow, uh, Lord, not just in an awareness of our sin, but in response to our sin. Lord, I pray that we would be able uh, not just to confront other people, but respond to confrontation over sin and that Lord, that would lead us to repentance. Lord, I pray ultimately that we would also be led to security, knowing that we are totally secure in our identity and our status before you, despite our sin. And Lord, I pray that as we do all of those things, as we endeavor to do all of those things alongside of each other, Lord, I pray that you'd also enable us, Lord, to experience joy. Lord, I pray that you'd enable us uh, to live a life that looks different than the world. Lord, we need your spirit to enable us in all those things. I pray that he would. I also pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.